Good morning. Hello again, John. Ha ha ha. Wee. Hi, Dan Benjamin. How are you? <laughs> I'm well. I'm well. I've been familiarizing myself with your work. Studying the, the volume of, uh, of shows, I guess. Yeah, all the great shows. All the great shows. You have been uh, very prolific over the years, and I'm, I'm, I consider it a great honor that you would call me two weeks in a row. Two weeks in a row. Well, Merlin has an, he has engagements, and mm-hmm. uh, and and uh, he had you know I had proposed to you, and uh, and he loved loved the idea. I guess he feels that you are one of the few who could uh, who could stand in. But you know, as much fun as it is doing the show, I do miss Merlin a little bit. It's a different I'm, feeling, but I like it. I miss him too. I you know <laughs> we haven't been doing our show either, and uh, that's right. You, you guys know. have a show together. Yeah, we have a little show we do every once in a while, and I, you know, I miss hearing his voice. I miss his uh, his his heady insights. Yeah, well, he's out. I guess he's doing. He has engagements that he has, he has to engagements. do periodically. Yeah. So, yeah, so you and I are here, just the two orphans, mm-hmm. just just chatting away. That's right, the two youngins. He's very. <laughs> he's he's up there. <laughs> he is. He is. He's seen a lot. He's yeah. done a lot. Yeah. 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 But I have. I too have been familiarizing myself with the catalog, the body of of work that you've done, not just the show that you do with Merlin, but uh, music and other things. And I have, I have, I would like to have a jumping off point this week. Oh, let's just, let's just might as well jump. (laughs) Also, you sound more awake. You sound, you're here. I feel like you got, must've had some sleep. Well, funny. You should uh, mention that I'm fighting a little bit of a cold. I didn't have a lot of sleep. I had some very weird dreams last night. Uh, Anything and, you can comfortable sharing on the show? Well, let's see. That at one at one point uh, last night, uh, I was in a. Okay, this is really weird. Yeah. I was in. A, I was in a hospital ship, and the hospital <laughs> ship, the operating room, was shaped like a giant pair of wax lips. Wow! Oh my gosh! So the so <laughs> if you were being operated on, you would lay down on these giant wax lips. Oh my and god! The, and it was a military uh, hospital ship, and the the <laughs> of course the, it was right. And the woman in charge was like a high ranking uh, doctor, also a sailor, and she was very nice about showing me around the ship. And I was like, you know, I love your ship, and it's I the lips are are weird, but but you know the military has its own way of doing things. And I you know I was uh, I, I was praising her on her like great ship and great crew. And she was like, well, the ship is being decommissioned. And then I felt like that was very tragic. And then she showed me what the ship could do, which was she had, uh, it had, it had maneuverability that you wouldn't, you wouldn't expect from a hospital ship. (laughs) Right. And she could actually stand it on its stern (laughs) and spin it around in the water, like doing a, a, effectively like a boat wheelie. Uh Uh-huh. And I was like, this is amazing. How do you continue operating on people in this boat while you're like do it while you're doing this endo? Yeah. And she then showed me that the lips were in a kind of suspension <laughs> in the center of the boat where you could be spinning the boat on this like up on its stern, nose in the air, spinning it around, and the lips would remain uh it like uh, sort of centrifugally uh 
suspended in like, the center right, of the boat. Right. So you wouldn't even notice. <laughs> and then and then my brain started kind of trying to do the math on it. Uh-huh. <laughs> Separate from the conversation I was having with her. Within the dream, I was thinking about how the science worked. <laughs> and I was like, well, surely there'd be a little bit of pitch and yaw <laughs> as this thing. I mean, it wouldn't be like, you'd have to compensate a little bit. Yeah. You couldn't, you couldn't be doing super detailed surgery there. So then I, so then I think I was awake. Were you, were you going to have surgery? No, no, I was just, I was just, um, I guess I was doing a tour of, (laughs) of, of like hot rod hospital ships. Right. But I was then awakened from that dream by another dream or a hallucination that a possum jumped up on my bed. (laughs) And I woke up with a start from the dream to confront this possum. But still in a dream. That was a dream within a dream. That, that was Inception. also a dream. Okay. Yeah. Right. I was not, there wasn't a possum on my bed, but I was startled from that, from the like super fun dream about the hospital boat to this very bummer dream scenario. Then the possum was kind of like, I think it had kind of a cat body, but a possum face. <laughs> And it jumped up on my bed, and I was like, "No, thank you." <laughs> but that was just a that was a hallucination, I guess, more than a dream. So, uh, so no, it didn't sleep very well. But then I, uh, but then it was sort of like, "Well, I'm going to go do the podcast, so I might as well get out of bed." Right. Wow. Do you believe so, in the symbolism of dreams? Do you anal- ever try and interpret or analyze your dreams, mm-hmm. <laughs> or do you play it safe and not even try? <laughs> no, I don't. I. I'm not sure that I do believe in the symbolism of dreams. Uh, I'm I'm always curious. I'm not somebody that like poo-poo's it. If somebody wants to wants to get into it with me, you know what? I I had a lot of dream slash hallucinations involving owls for a while, and people were like, "Oh, alien owl. abduction." That's right. That's yeah. very symbolic. And I was like, "Well, yeah." I also have alien abduction dreams, though. So <laughs> I don't understand. I don't understand why we would need to. Why some of them would need to be symbolic. You seem like the kind of person who would be abducted by aliens. I keep saying that. Yes. I keep feeling and have for many years that if the aliens are going to abduct somebody, they should just get on with it and abduct me and stop trying to erase my memory of it. If that's what they're doing. Do you have like like periods of law? (laughs) I feel like I'm about to jump in a rabbit hole. Do you feel like you have periods of lost time that you can't can't account for? No. No. No, I don't. I account for every second. Okay. See, I don't I don't have that either and yet I still kind of worry. Do you, have you ever had the sleep paralysis where you wake up and and you can't move? No, I'm not looking forward to that either. <laughs> I I do have uh, you know, I do occasionally have night terrors where I leap out of bed in full combat. Oh, mode. my gosh. But I don't have – I've never had sleep paralysis. Can I describe I, it to you? Because I have had it, and it's you, terrible. You've had it multiple times? Yes. I don't anymore because the, I've taken precautions against it. But I can describe it to you if you want to hear about Just, it. Please describe it and also describe the precautions you've taken. Okay. All right. I'm trying to think back to the time period when I have this, and I will say that it was in my late teens, early 20s time period when it would happen from time to time. And 
here's what ha- here's what it feels like. Now there, this is the if you want to, I'll put this in the show notes. Actually, I'm making a note to put it in show notes. Um, and show notes will be at five by five tv slash b two w slash two three one. So you you don't wait. you have assistance to do your show notes? Don't you just pitch that? No, often? I'm doing I'm doing them. Oh wow! On this show, I always do. Them. It's it's bespoke. Yes. Right. You wake up, and you're not. It's not a dream state. It's not a dream. It's very clear that it's not a dream. And frequently, like you, you will hear things like you might hear, you know, a, a dog barking or you might hear traffic or whatever. All of the things that indicate to you that you're awake, you may or may not. And usually your eyes are not open, but you, you're conscious. Your mind is fully conscious and awake, but you are not able to move. Hence the term sleep paralysis. You wake from sleep and you can't move. And, uh, and, and you're aware that you were there and awake and in your body, you can feel things and hear things, but you can't move your arms or do all the things that you would normally do when you're starting to wake up. And this is a very, usually you feel kind of panicked about it because you're like, oh my God, I can't move. And I've had different resolutions of this. One resolution is you calm yourself down and sort of go back to sleep. And then whatever, and my understanding is that, that, that there's a mechanism that keeps you from the same mechanism that, that would keep you from like, if you're having a dream about running to like keep from doing the Scooby-Doo running thing in bed while you're asleep. Right. Mm-hmm. Or like if you're imagining punching someone in your dream, th- this is what keeps you from punching people. But something can go wrong where, where it, it stays in effect and you kind of come out of sleep a little bit in a weird way. So the one option is to actually fall back asleep. And then when the next time you wake up, you're, you're normal again. You're like, Oh, that sucked. <laughs> the other thing that happens is to an attack. And I've only succeeded in doing this a couple times. I remember it vividly somehow breaking through just by sheer force of, of will breaking through to will yourself to be able to move again. And I've all mm. the times that happened, I've only been able to do that maybe once or twice. But here's what I found. I found that that only seems to happen if I'm like flat on my back when I uh, when I wake up and I and it has to be from like a full night's sleep to for this to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I'm not like flat, so I try not to sleep flat on my back is one of the precautions, and the other uh, is to like set an alarm to wake me up uh, and and. And, or, or just not like sleep in that much, but I don't know. I might have also just grown out of it. It might have been some. Who knows what the cause was? Uh, but it, it's it's not a it's not a fun thing. No, that sounds terrible. It is terrible. And if you've never had it, good and don't don't get it. No, I was having a conversation uh, the other day with a friend, uh, and it, the the conversation turned to the question of our wills. Mm. Um, and there was all this, uh, you know, you, you make a will and you're like, well, if I die, then I want all my stuff to go to my kid. And there should be some people in between that make sure that it gets apportioned or, or, you know, managed. You don't want to caught up in, in probate court or something. Yeah. And you don't want to give like a house and a car to a, to a five-year-old kid either. <laughs> right. I mean, you, yeah. you, 
uh, th- there should be some intermediaries. But then there were the, there, the, we started talking and there were these other questions like, well, what happens if you are in a non-responsive coma? Right. And, and it's one thing, you know, my mom and my dad, both <clears throat> as they edged into their eighties, they were both very clear, stipulated, like no, no, uh, excessive means to resuscitate them, no intubation, these type of things. And it was like, yes, 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 of course. I'm not going to, I'm not going to keep my parents hooked to a machine living as a vegetable, Yeah, you know, for a dozen years. And it actually, it actually was something that we had to consider with my dad as he, as he, you know, his, he didn't die suddenly. He died over the course of several weeks. And it was like, oh, we're actually in one of these scenarios now where we have to talk about what to do next. But, but when you think about it for yourself, um, you know, here I am in my mid forties, but it is, I mean, our, our good friend, uh, Stephen Toulouse, mm. I don't know if you know, Stephen, I don't, uh, or he, he goes by the online handle Steptoe <laughs> and Steptoe <laughs> was like a Microsoft, uh, you know, Xbox, uh, guru type and very popular online and, uh, and, a and a good friend. And one day he went into a coma just recently where the prognosis was he will not survive. Oh, wow. And he's, you know, he's a guy uh, our age or a little bit younger. And his family was kind of on Facebook saying, thank you for your condolences. Um, you know, the, the prognosis isn't good. I don't think he's going to last through the weekend. And of course, everybody, you know, all of his entire community are all scientists and internet nerds and computer math people. And yet they were all like, you know, instantly, like there are no atheists in foxholes, right? They were all praying for him or they were doing science prayer, whatever that is. Right. Uh, And then miraculously, he did surface from the coma and now is, has returned. Wow. Uh, utterly returned from like a prognosis of, of gone completely. And so facing that, you know, and it was just like a cause for such rejoicing, but also um, you realize how tenuously we all are, are gripping to this mortal coil and thinking like, what would I, if I went into a coma, let's right. say, yes, and I was, and, and I'm in a position now to stipulate to people what I would want to have happen. What is it exactly that I would want to have happen? If I, you know, if I woke up with sleep paralysis one day right, and then, you know, and people all crowded into my room and were like, can you hear us? And I was like, yes, I can, but couldn't move or respond. Yeah. I mean, how do you say, well, after two and a half weeks, I'd say just unplug me. Oh, yeah. It's getting, it's getting too expensive. You wouldn't want that to happen. No. But on the other hand, you don't want to burden your friends and family with uh, with caring for you if you truly have become a non entity. So it's been it's it's been kind of weighing on me. Not not because I um, I feel pretty I feel pretty confident that if I slipped into a coma, yeah, and the prognosis was not good, and a sufficient amount of time went by where everybody had done their due diligence. And they all got together and they were like, well, you know, shit. There doesn't seem to be 
any sign of recovery. Yeah. And then somebody, then the, the, then the, the one, you know, hopeful person was like, but what about all those instances where people have been in comas for years and then suddenly they're back? I would feel okay about saying to that person, it's a pretty slim chance. Mm-hmm. Why don't you just, you know, like send him into the great unknown. Don't, don't you know, don't, don't tarry around. <laughs> don't worry about it. Get on with yourselves. But then again, I'm not, you know, I'm well, not. You can't um, imagine how you would feel when you're like there though. You might have the exact opposite feeling if you were locked in in that way. Right. Like, don't, don't kill me. Don't kill right, me. Right. Right. But I'm here. But I don't you know. know. I don't know. Yeah, either. I'm here, but you sort of, you know, you kind of, we all die. Yeah. It's just a question of, well, who knows? Honestly, it's, it's, uh, it's hardly worth speculating on, except that it could happen. But so many things could happen, Dan Benjamin. It's true. Our first sponsor is Harry's. When did shaving get so expensive? It's crazy if you've been out there, you price these blades you get at the grocery store or Target or drugstore, and uh, these blades are so expensive. And you're putting them on a razor that's, to be honest, like it's not even that special. Well, Harry's, they're setting out to fix this. Harry's was started by two guys passionate about creating a better shaving experience for all men and women too. Harry's delivers a superior shave. They bought a blade factory in Germany that's been making some of the world's highest quality blades for nearly a century. And they cut out the middleman and they offer an amazing shave at a fraction of the price of the drugstore brands that I was telling you about. They have this really cool starter kit. I got that. And it comes with the razor, which is really, really nicely made. It, it feels great. And it's like weighted, you know, it doesn't feel like a cheap piece of plastic. They come with also three blades and your choice. You can get the shave cream, or the foaming shave gel. Merlin says he likes the shave gel. I've been uh, using the shave cream. Both are awesome. And as an added bonus, you're going to get five bucks off your first purchase if you use my code, the code for this show, COMICS, C-O-M-I-C-S. You'll get a whole month's worth of shaving for just 10 bucks. You'll get the great starter kit and shipping is always free. So you go to harrys.com, H-A-R-R-Y-S, harrys.com. And to get that code, uh, use that code for comics to get five bucks off. Go check them out. Either you or I tonight, this very night, could be abducted by aliens. I mean, do you believe? Do you believe in in aliens? Like, do you believe that whether they're from another planet or another dimension or a future version of us or whatever the different theories are? Like, do you believe whoa, in whoa, any? Whoa, whoa, another dimension? Yeah, a future version of us. Yeah. What- comic books are you reading i read a lot i read a lot of things do you believe it do you believe that do you believe that that could be i mean i know you're running for office yeah but you know i mean is that something better be careful about saying something that might saying something on a podcast that might endanger my chances yeah uh well you know uh this is one of those this is this is the thing about about um science religion like at this on the surface level, no, I do not believe in ghosts or aliens or uh, I do not believe that there is a one world government. I do not believe that the Jews control the media. I do not believe that Building Seven was destroyed with a bomb. I do believe that jet fuel can melt steel. Yeah. Uh, 
And so I mostly take life at face value because there are so many there are so many great stories about dragons and and talking bushes <laughs> and um people ascending directly to heaven. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I and I, I I admire those stories, but nothing in my in my firsthand experience has ever confirmed them. Right. So and and I, and I also do not believe that it would behoove aliens to keep themselves secret. I don't believe that it would behoove God to keep his existence in doubt as a test. I don't I, I, I reject the I reject the fundamental logic that God is is sneaky or that um that aliens are wouldn't just show up here and announce themselves. Mm. Uh, or at least that's not any more compelling than the idea that they, that, that things would just, that, that, uh, that God or UFOs would just say, hello, <laughs> I am the one who has been, uh, who has been monkeying with your pets. Right. Uh, but that said, I also, there's a big part of me that is very connected to, the magical and that side keeps itself com- you know, almost completely uh, discreet from the side of me that is like piloting the car on the road. Right. Right. And so the part of me that is ma- that, that lives in a realm of magic is absolutely convinced not only that there are ghosts, but that there are UFOs and that, the crows are watching us and <laughs> that everything is connected and that there are no coincidences. And I still don't believe that building seven was destroyed with a bomb. Right. But I do, you know, like I get, I get spooked and I get intrigued and I get amazed and I, uh, and I revel in that and, and, so so I'm a person that's very comfortable saying that simultaneously no I definitely do not believe in UFOs and also yes absolutely I do believe in UFOs. Yeah. No, I hear that. So um but that's difficult to reconcile uh because I'm those two sides of uh, of my brain are often in conversation and especially they are in conversation late at night when I'm walking through a New England graveyard. Oh yeah, well, <laughs> I mean that's when that's when people come up with with these kinds of concerns. Yeah. I mean, I get exactly what you're saying. I in in sort of sort of thinking back, I don't really have. I only have one sort of unexplained event in my whole life where I sort of thought I saw something and then it, it wasn't there, that kind of thing. Like that's only happened to me once. And I, what was your one, what was your unexplained event? Well, I was a I was a little kid. Right. So maybe, all, all, already we know that you are an unreliable narrator. Yes. And I was maybe four years old and I thought that I saw a, a, a an entity, a being hmm. in a room. And then, uh, and, and, and then, 
got you know scared and ran away and went back in and looked again. Now, I think that happens to my kids on a daily basis. You know, based on what they're based on this, this fantastical stories that they tell when no one else is in the house except you know us and them. So I'm pretty sure that that is just some of the you know, some of the sort of fantasy realm of being in a kid and thinking you see something and not. And then, uh, then there was an, when I was really on the Whitley Stryber communion book kick, mm-hmm. uh, in, in, I guess like high school, college time period. Um, I, I believed that I saw a human alien hybrid. Okay. In Publix in the grocery store. Oh, really? But, uh, it it could have also just been an elderly woman with a respiratory condition. So I'm not uh, I'm not right. totally sure. It could have you know it could uh, could be either way. I was spooked though in a way that I had not been spooked ever before or since. So I don't know. But like nothing really extraordinary in that sense has ever happened to me. But I definitely what I believe in it. I sort of believe in the possibility mm-hmm. of of alien beings or or whatever. I believe that that's possible. But I'm, I, I definitely feel like there isn't – because I've never had any firsthand experience with it and because I know that my own memories can be so so fallible, so wrong of the way that I remember something. I'll be like, oh, I remember when I met you, you were wearing you know white pants and, uh, and a blue shirt. <laughs> and like I've never owned white pants, you know, like right. it's, it's – to- whereas it's totally not correct at all. And yet, in my mind, it's an absolute, it's a concrete, no, you had white pants. It's like, no, I've never worn white pants. Who's right and who's wrong? You know, it's, it's, uh, memory, it can be so weird that way. And that's where when you hear the people recalling stories, like, I want to have some kind of a proof, but there's never, there's never any proof. There's Mm. never any proof of anything ever. No, well, especially since, I mean, my emotional life and my intellectual life are on very different tracks. How how so? Well, you know, (laughs) like emotions are, as a good friend of mine used to say, emotions are real. Emotions are authentic. Yeah. And if you are, if you spend your whole life as an, as a intellectual person dismissing your emotions as just emotions um you're always going to be uh you're you're always going to be sort of living half a life right your emotions are just as real as your perceptions and thoughts yeah and um and yet you have to contextualize them within um you know within the the building blocks of reality and and if you're if you are so in love with a person that you are willing to drive across the country wearing a diaper uh, so that you don't have to pull over to go to the bathroom in order yeah. to confront this person having an affair with, with some other astronaut. Yeah, yeah. Um, you got to get you, there. Well, you got to get there. You got to get there. You, know? you got to get there. That's right. And you are trained to either hold it or go in your suit. So that's not that unusual for somebody in that, you know, if, you, if you've been trained, if you've been yes. properly trained. yes. But, you know, you, you do have to balance, like, your emotional reality against, your, against what we call reality reality. But that doesn't mean that you dismiss your emotions and say that they are, that they're just all lies. Because, of course, they're not. They're, 
they're very important. And, and I mean, as a songwriter, one of the things that I learned early on about my own songs was that they were not about events. They were about emotional states. Hmm. And, and I was using the word, I was using words and I was describing events, but those events were not meant to be taken literally. They, my songs aren't timelines of events. They are events which each one, you know, each one is meant to conjure an emotion in a person. And then you string those emotions together and that tells you a story. The story of my songs is all told in, you know, in a kind of uh, pearl necklace of, of emotional <laughs> fe- you know, feelings. Really, yes, ultimately. yes. And so why, that's why my songs sometimes feel like they're full of uh, non sequiturs because it's like, here's a line and then the next line sort of doesn't relate to it, but that line should have, should have generated a feeling in you. And this line should generate a feeling and you recognize that the feelings are connected. And so that's a, that was a way of me trying to speak in an emotional language uh, that is, you know, that can interact with, with real language and and, um, descriptive language. And it sort of colonizes descriptive language in order to express, an, uh, you know, an emotional narrative. Uh, so to give like voice to your emotions in yourself and and to to acknowledge them in other people, not just when people have outbursts, but you know when they're speaking emotionally. Mm-hmm. Like I have had dozens of emotionally powerful experiences with the um with with an other world or other worlds where it's very real to me emotionally even as my intellectual voice intellectual mind is saying this is ludicrous why are you hyperventilating there's nothing any different from a New England graveyard in the middle of the night with the fog rolling in. There's no, absolutely nothing different from that and a golf course on a sunny day. Right. Why are you pan- seriously in the throes of a panic attack right now? And second of all, if you are susceptible to that, why are you walking through a New England graveyard in the middle of the night yeah. by yourself in the, in a, on a foggy fall day? Right. A foggy fall evening. Uh. <clears throat> The answer to the second question was that I was it was a shortcut, and I was going from one <laughs> Vermont village to another, and happened to there happened to be a abandoned graveyard. But none, nonetheless, that's not, that's neither here nor there. You have to give you have to give credence to the that emotional life, but at the same time, I guess I guess the science voice says that humans are animals. And deceitful ones, right? Or, or, I mean, when we when we tell the stories of the original gods, we we imbue those original gods with all this deceitful agency. They're all such like liars and sneaks and jealous, bitter, small uh, children, right? In their behavior, and that's such an extension of our own you know, how we are in our own fears. And, and if you zoom out and say, 
like what possible interest could a all-powerful creator figure have in behaving this way why would they have this personality it seems like the first thing they would use their powers to do is go is to conjure a psychiatrist and go to them <laughs> right that would be the before you start making worlds right. make, a, make a psychiatrist and talk to the psychiatrist about some of your jealousy issues uh but then again you know if if there are ghosts if all of the if all of the beings who have ever lived on earth are still inhabiting the earth after death or on some alternate timeline or in an alternate dimension and they're all just sort of fumbling around no, no, no energy is lost your body dies and then you just are just sort of hang around every once in a while you can move some books on a shelf or something <laughs> right i mean i guess that's just as plausible as that as that um as you approach the speed of light time slows down and comes to a stop yeah i don't know i'm you know i'm no metaphysician <laughs> our second sponsor is linda l y n d a linda.com and you can go to linda.com slash back to work spelled out to support the show and you'll also get access to over 3,000 on-demand video courses during your 10-day trial using that URL, lynda.com slash back to work. Some of the courses I think you should check out that are really cool. You know what? Like we're all wanting to go paperless. They've got a course on that. That's really cool. Growth hacking fundamentals, weekly office workshop, all of these things that are like focused on making your life at work and your job better. And of course, there's tons of stuff. If you're a software developer, they've got Ruby on Rails stuff. They've got stuff for PHP developers. Turn you into one if you're not one already. Really cool stuff on like how to use Logic Pro, Pro Tools, if you want to get into podcast editing, GarageBand. Uh, you know, they have fundamentals in using like Photoshop, Illustrator, you name it, pretty much everything that you want to learn if it involves a computer in one way or another. And even if it doesn't, they've got courses on getting things done with David Allen himself, like teaching the course. It's the best stuff, the best, best teachers, top experts who love to teach. And you're going to get 10 days access to all of these courses. That's the way it works. You pay a flat rate and you have access to everything. So you can watch as much as you want, as little as you want, as often as you want over and over if you like that. So go check it out. Linda, L-Y-N-D-A, lynda.com slash back to work. Over 3,000 courses and you get access to them all during your 10-day free trial. So thanks very much to Linda for supporting Back to Work. Do you think that the people who come out and, and, and say, you know, I was abducted by aliens or I have, I have periods of lost time and I have owl dreams or... You know, I've had this religious experience where God spoke to me. Do you put those things kind of on the same uh, level, like on the same, at, at the same level, both as put some kind of experience that's meaningful because there's emotion wrapped up in it, uh, or or and and each one is equally difficult to explain, or is there is it sort of like, well, the person who had the alien, they, they're nuts, but the person who had the God experience, they're they're right. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, they're inspired or they're a yeah, prophet. yeah. I mean, the thing about because it seems acceptable to there, there are there are places 
you could walk in and you could say in front of a thousand people, God spoke to me last night and told me to come here, and and the audience would applaud. Oh, Jesus, they'd, they'd, they'd ask you to run for president. Right, but if you walked into a room and said, and I would say there's lots of those rooms, but the, the number of rooms where you could walk in and say, I was abducted last night, uh, there's very few rooms that would, would be re- you know, receiving of you in the same way. You know, there are convention centers in the Las Vegas area where I think you would be, you would be received You'd be quite well with yeah. that story. I mean, it was, it's just as you implied earlier uh, about the white pants scenario. Yeah. I mean, as, we have, as we have now sort of investigated our long history of eyewitness accounts in our court system, and have seen eyewitness convictions of people overturned with DNA evidence right. over and over and over where a person <clears throat> sat up on the stand and said, that's the killer. I saw him with my own two eyes. And then it turns out, no, in fact, you did not. That is not the killer. He was not anywhere around there. And it was in fact, a completely other person and we now prove that with science. But unfortunately, this one person spent 35 years in prison mm. on the strength of your testimony. Yeah, And it's one of the main arguments against the death penalty because a lot of people on death row are convicted with eyewitness testimony because we have traditionally weighted it very heavily. Eyewitness testimony. Um, you know, you, you could, the detectives compile all this evidence but then the witness is the thing that really pushes the case over over the edge and when you realize that we are unreliable that we do not see as clearly as we think we do not remember as well as we imagine um and that we continue to convict people of crimes every day and also we continue to talk about memory and particularly memory of violence or memory of abuse or memory of, you know, like bad memories. We continue to talk about them as though they are in some ways definitive, you know, and it's not just alien abduction, but, but I mean, remember, I don't know if you are, you surely remember, but there was a, there was a period in American life where we were convicting preschool teachers of, running satanic sex rings based on this sort of hysterical uh, waves of, of um, uh, like a mass delusion. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, that's not to discredit everybody's memory or story of things, but, but just to contextualize them. And so when, when somebody stands up and says, I definitely was abducted by aliens. My inclination is to say that you you had some emotional events and and then directed you know di- directed all that energy into something that felt um felt like a meaningful explanation. And the same is true I think when people are being spoken to by their god. Um, it's just then more and more unclear when people recount events that sort of did, you know, in many cases did happen or a version of them happened. 
And you don't want to discredit that. You don't want to say that didn't happen. But you also, we just see so many instances where where our memories fail us, and it's, right. and and, it, and those are not always the instant. They're, they're not always the case that somebody's like, "I'm not sure if that's the guy." Right, the but where di- they where they swear that yes, this yeah. is the person. Right. If it was just if it was if we could just look at the evidence and say, "Oh, every one of those instances, a detective kind of leaned on him and said, come on, isn't that the guy?'" But no, oh, it's 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 just as often the ones where it's like, "I know, I knew him. I the moment I saw him, and that's him." And I have you know. No doubts in my mind. And this is my memory of how it went down. And I mean, I look at it my, at my own life and, and we, all ha- we all do, right? Where you, th- where you say, do I remember that event or did I just look at a photograph of it so many times? Right. Some, some instance when I was a kid where I heard people talk about it. I looked at pictures and, um, and it, it so shaped my memory that I absolutely, I absolutely am certain that I remember it myself but then you think it's, it's it's not possible really that i do that i remember it with the clarity with a photographic clarity yeah so and, I, and that happened to me once i was robbed at gunpoint in um yeah. in spanish harlem up at um uh, up along the east river sort of at sundown or 11 o'clock at night I shouldn't have been wandering around where I was and a, and a guy pulled out a gun and, you know, whatever. He wanted my wallet and I was like, I'm not going to give you my wallet, but I'll give you all my money, which it was a couple hundred bucks. And then I went and found the police and they were New York police and they were, they were great. And they, they were like, get in the car, let's drive around. And so we drove around up there looking uh, in all the places where junkies congregate and we couldn't find the guy. And so we went back and went through their mugshot books. And I'm, you know, and I think I was saying like, well, he had a scar. He had a really uh, characteristic scar. And he looked like the, he had this kind of hair and this, he was this sort of fellow. And we're flipping through the books. And I was like, that guy, there he is. That's the guy. And the detective was like, are you sure? And I was like, not 100%, but pretty sure that's his guy. That's the guy. And he took the book and walked over and, you know, talked to somebody else and brought it back. And he's like, well, that guy is currently in jail. So it couldn't have been him. (laughs) But thanks for coming in. Right. And I was like, well, right. And and having, having picked a guy, then. Right now you've made your pick. Yeah, that kind of discredits like, well, no, 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 let me look at the book again. Right. I think I can get closer this time. Let's find a guy who's not currently in jail. Um, so I don't know. I mean, the, I think that obviously we have to order our lives in some way. That seems to be one of our instincts to, to order reality in a way that we all sign off on and say like, here it is, here's reality. And what amazes me still is that so much of of um, so much of our mainstream world, so much of the world, the actual world that we have all agreed upon, is ordered around ancient books that make fantastical claims about supernatural beings. Um, so we 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 agree that we need to order things a certain way and call it reality. 
We all shake hands on that. And then the vast majority of people in the world um, shake hands on, on these, uh, these ancient mythologies. Like that is as real to the majority of us as the concrete abutments that hold up the bridges. Uh, and what, you know, and there's, and that, there, there appears to be no, there's, there's no sign that that's going going away anytime soon. Even as we explore the heavens, even as we, um, even as we explore the microcosms, even as we test and retest and, and probe still like you could not get elected president of the United States. If you did not forswear a belief in, um, in an ancient, an ancient book and an ancient deity. Right. And all of our major conflicts, people are dying by the score. All, all on, you know, all based around these, or at least, or at least the the window dressing of those conflicts is uh, disagreements over, you know, whose cousin, which which cousin of the prophet is the real cousin, which cousin of the prophet is the real is the anointed cousin, and which cousin is the is the defamed cousin. Yeah. So astonishing to me that these worlds can can coexist that Neil deGrasse Tyson and Rick Santorum cannot just share a world, but share a pulpit in a way. Right. Right. They are addressing the same public and, and there are tons and tons of people. I think that, I mean, I don't know how many people give them equal weight, but there's certain, we certainly, I mean, I, I turn on my computer and look at the internet and, and I'm reading about Rick Santorum and reading about Neil deGrasse Tyson in the same breath. So, uh, and, and I mean, who, what does that say about us? We, we really are so, so in the midst of evolving, right? We're so, we're so, um, we're so on a timeline and in the middle of it. Um, what an interesting way to say that. And I've never really thought of it like that, but that is so true. Yeah, we always think that we are at the culmination of right. it, but we're not. We're we are we're absolutely definitely some we we have we have come out of the primordial ooze. We are breathing air, but we still have gills and flippers and we keep retreating back into the water every time a shadow flies over. And yeah, and this is the, the this is the humanity that we uh, that I mean my apportioned my appointed ninety five years on this planet, uh, inshallah, comes now, right? Not not five hundred years ago, not five hundred years from now, but now this is uh, this is my time, yeah. an hour time, and so we have to make do with it. We have to make do with what where we are. Do what we can. Whatever, you know, whatever our situation is now, I think people historically are always trying to think that this is the right time. This is the most important time. You know, this is when everything. And of course, because like this is our this is our time yeah. right now. And hearing you say that, like, it's so true. It's like having kids, I think, kind of puts that in a different perspective. Like, I never cared about 
you know, people say, oh, you know, you don't let the water run while you're brushing your teeth. I'm like, who cares? Like, well, it's wasting water. I'm like, yeah, there's more water, you know, when you're a little kid. <laughs> what are they talking about? Wasting water. There's always water here. There's always been water here. There always will be water. Well, maybe now, maybe not. Right. So, you know, my kids have always grown up in that in that world of like, try to think about other things, try to think about other people. But you can see they don't they don't really care. They don't really care. Mm -mm. And like I cared in the sense of like politically correct about the future. People would say, well, you've got to worry about this. You've got to worry about the, the future. And so like I, I did that, but it was more going through the motions. And now I see that our time is just this very, very, very brief thing. And like even our kids' time is a very brief thing. But I find I, I think about that a lot. Yeah. Like, you know, like what, like what, what kind of world are we leaving for our kids? It's very different when it's like your potential kids, as opposed to like the one that's, you know, you're reading to right now and putting in bed. <laughs> well, and, and harder even still to zoom out a little bit more and say like my kids, all kids, all kids, right. Uh, as darling as they are. And as much as, you know, as I'm personally like in their thrall, right. Uh, my kids are also, <laughs> my kids are as irrelevant as me in, you know, depending on the scale and just, you know, depending on the scale of the, of the, uh, of the lens of the microscope you're using. But I remain very hopeful about the future and, you know, and I, I'm thinking about not just the world I'm leaving to my kid, but like, how do I help my kid do, do something so that their kids are doing something so that in the grand scheme of things, 400 years from now, I will have, I will have seeded a garden so that, you know, at least my, long form contribution is a force for good. Mm -hmm. And, and that is, you know, that's playing with time. That's time traveling in a way that, that I think we too infrequently like dream about that stuff. Right. I mean, people like the Rockefellers and the Carnegie's and now the Gates and the Musk's mm -hmm. or, Musk may be still a singular. They are thinking in those terms in the sense that, like, I hope that this library that I built is, will out, not just outlive me, but become an edifice that, um, that even kind of outlives my memory. Right. That, but they're doing that through money. They have money and they say, I'm going to build a, I'm going to build a tower here and, long after I'm gone, they will still have to reckon with this thing I <laughs> right, here. Right, right. But for most of us on a much smaller scale, like the, the, the real opportunity we have is not to leave behind some document or leave behind some small invention or some record album or whatever, but it is to, you know, to within the values of the, of our children, you know, send little time capsules, little Easter eggs to the future 
and say like, here are, here are my values. Here's what I figured out. Here are your values. And hopefully somewhere along the line, that progress isn't interrupted by some, someone with a psychosis. Right. Or that some wonderful person isn't destroyed in a car accident or, yeah. or a, a world war or a house fire or something. And that you're able to really send that down the line. And obviously not just in your own kids, but in the people you affect in, in our time and with, and, and the things that they send on to their kids. You know, you try to make a ripple that, that ultimately is, is a ripple of good. Do you think that in a way that that's more, when you talk about legacy and things like that, I'm on exactly the same page as you, and I know exactly what you're talking about. And I wonder, is that a, like a, is that, could that be a guy thing? (laughs) You know, I, I think that it is, I think that the terms that we're talking about, the terms that we're using right now, it, it, it's actually sort of a, a much more feminine approach to that in the sense that the traditional guy way of doing that was clear this land mm-hmm. of these trees and of these wild animals and burn those forests and, you know, and build, 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 destroy, destroy, build, build. <laughs> right, right. And we have evolved in, in recent years, at least, to be able to talk now more about uh, about having those ripples go out in terms of of feelings and values and you know and and that kind of civilization building is a much more you know i think that that has always historically been the province of of um of the women the mm-hmm. that kind of language of like let's make sure that our children are good. Let's make sure that we are leaving something, leaving something behind in, in terms of values. Um, Well, definitely. But a guy thing in the sense of like, of, of building some library or creating a giant bridge or, you know, or something that those are all just, you know, that's just all phallus work. Right. Right. You just, you, (laughs) you make a big mud penis and you say, this mud penis will survive me. <laughs> and then in the, the spring floods come and the mud penis is gone. And you come back and you're like, I will build a penis of rocks. <laughs> and the spring floods come and the rocks are gone. How will I build a penis that will survive me? <laughs> Steel! Uh. And, uh, you know, as, a, as somebody who spent his whole adult life kind of living equally in history as well as in the present. Mm -hmm. You know, there are those, there are those miraculous little homes in Europe, for instance, which have been standing for 500 years. Mm -hmm. So it can be, it can be done. You're walking through a little village and you come upon, you walk into a pub and you're like, when was this pub built? And they're like 1536. And you go, holy shit. And you look up and you see the, 
you see the 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 marks on the beams where the original people that you know that shaped that beam from a tree with their you know their little handheld axe like you can see their work and you can you can see their thinking and it survived not because it was great but just because why did this tavern survive it wasn't it wasn't beautiful uh, especially it wasn't any more useful than anything else why was it spared a, f- a fire right. or um or just being torn down so you know you can you can make like carve an X into a rock and throw it somewhere and a hundred thousand years from now it'll still be there. But but ultimately like particularly people like you and me, what is our craft? What are we what are we building to last? Um you know what have what have we designed and, and in a way it is that it's a combination of the fact that technology enables us to record ourselves, which no one really prior to, to our parents' generation had, had that ability other than with a, you know, with a, a uh, to ins- they could inscribe, but they couldn't capture the actual conversations. And so what are we, I mean, we, are we just the early ones Establishing, you know, establishing this new lexicon, this cadence, or are we the inventors of something? Are we, what are, what, what are all these recorded conversations going to add up to? And hopefully it is, you know, they're, they're the, they're the building blocks of a new dictionary if not a new um, diction, and and they will be useful, and maybe we will be, and almost certainly we will be forgotten. But it will be the, but we will lay the groundwork. There are there are people listening to this program who will build something, uh, so, some mental architecture, and social architecture that is the is the lattice um, upon which grows some wonderful new new organ. Wow. I mean, it sounds like you're, you're talking about like that we're moving in a direction. Like we, we collectively, not just like you and me, but we as a, as a, as species are moving towards something. It sounds like you believe that at least. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. Even if you don't like know what that is, I don't think we can know what it is. You know, I I think it's, I think it's fractals in every direction. Um, <laughs> you know, but we have identified, we have identified what we imagine is good and evil, and we've spent centuries tussling over it and we're still tussling over it and we still don't know there isn't a hard line between those things but we have we have established them and 
there's something in us that that compels the majority of us to to try to trend toward good and that's very hopeful to me and that, and we may be completely lying to ourselves the 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 aliens that live among us who are not revealing themselves to us for for special reasons only they know may be laughing at the you know the strange little binaries that we posit but it's it's what we've come up with and um you know and all of our endeavor it, it keeps directing us and redirecting us toward toward really figuring out where good lies and and really trying to mine it and and trying to trying to build toward it and we don't agree and people over here are building toward some you know they're building toward a, a good where the where the the big conflagration starts in Israel and then God comes back and these people over here are trying to build a world in which you know there's more equitability and more um and more justice but but that motivation is shared that motivation to 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 move toward what we imagine is something better and i i have a lot of faith in 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 that um and that excites me you know but i but i will never see the you know, I'll never see the the end of it. None of us will. Our next sponsor is Smile. Our friends over at Smile, they, they make the best software stuff we just could not live without, including Text Expander 5. It helps make your life so much better. I don't know what I would do without Text Expander. Basically, you, you, you type in, some, they usually recommend you use like the semicolon. So you type like, semicolon SIG and it'll insert your signature like right into your email but what's better than that it's X Expander has started to get really really smart it will now make suggestions of frequently typed phrases and you can create those abbreviations right there like missed opportunities to use abbreviations while you're typing like if it sees you're typing your phone number over and over again you could type like semicolon PH boom it'll insert your phone number like all of this but it's there like helping you creating these shortcuts and making your life just easier and better. Text Expander 5 has support for JavaScript. This will also work in Text Expander Touch for the iPad and iPhone. Man, there's so much that it lets you do. Suggesting the abbreviations. You can put your snippet and then iCloud Drive or Dropbox. Like it syncs it up so that it's on all your computers, all your devices. Text Expander 5 fits with Yosemite. It's got the Yosemite look and feel. Text Expander 3 and custom keyboard is available for iPad and iPhone. Like they have you covered. And this is money well spent. Text Expander 5 costs $44.95. And upgrades are $19.95 if you're an existing user. Text Expander 5, you need Yosemite to use it. Like they're forward thinking. They're moving forward. This is where you need to be. But I want you to go and check out the special URL. It'll support the show, but it's also a great way to learn more. Go to smilesoftware.com slash B2W. 
And uh, you can go download a free demo of it there. They've got videos and links, everything else. Go check it out. Smilesoftware.com slash B2W. Thanks very much to Smile for making this show possible. There's one thing I remember listening to in um, Ajahn Jeff, who's this uh, really awesome like Buddhist uh, teacher. In one of his talks, he was talking about you know, how there's, everything is always unfinished. Like there's always, you know, in, in he was, I would think, you know, in, in one of the many sort of Buddhist, uh, you know, things that from the outside, if, if you're not like practicing, that sounds really pessimistic. Like, you know, he would give a talk on like preparing for death and thinking about that and not in, in, you know, in, in, in the sense that mentally, kind of be prepared for that because that's that's something that like you said earlier that will happen and in the west especially we don't like to think about that so there's this talk that if if you're like a practicing buddhist and and you're into this stuff like that's just a normal thing to sort of talk about and think about but if it's from the outside you're like what a bunch of pessimists and like why would you think about that all the time but in this talk he was saying you know like one of the things that we often think about is that like, there's so much that's not done. We're not finished, you know, and even, even at at the end of a long life in the best case scenario, you might feel like you've accomplished a lot, but there's still, there's that one other thing I wanted to do. But in reality, like nothing is ever finished. Like you're never really finished with anything, you know, sometimes like you're like, Oh, we just got to launch this thing. It's not done, but it's as close as we can get. Or, Oh, I could, I guess, you know, record another track, but We've got enough, so we'll just, we'll do it. But that's kind of the way life is. Like, we never really, we're never really done. Right. No one ever really owns a Patak Philippe. <laughs> just care for it for the next generation. <laughs> <laughs> that's so true. Yeah, it really is. I mean, the thing that I, <laughs> the thing that I think about uh, all the time is that you know, human history is full of incidences of like mass death, famine, war, pestilence, all the writers of the apocalypse. Um, and we are not done with that. There will be another. And we, we worry about it constantly. Every time there's a new flu, the reason that everyone gets hysterical about it is that the last flu killed millions of people. Yeah. And no one saw it coming. We were all so worried about the millions of people that we were concurrently killing in the First World War that that this influenza snuck in and killed more people than the war had done. And so there will be another flu and there will be another war and we work and work to avoid those things. But in the historical arc of time, they are, they are just sort of part of the process, maybe. I mean, the, all the people in The Hague who are working to end war and, um, and all the people at the CDC who are working to end flus. Yeah might say that is that is the wrong attitude to take uh, because no one wants to live through one of those things. 
but they you know but they happen and they're part of they're part of being human and we we somehow even can survive you know survive mass waves of death where surely some of our best are lost you know not just in a house fire but like whole whole families um whole generations of ideas like giant leaps forward that we weren't able to make and yet we we persist and our our path um it's like if you drop a brick on a on a uh, swarm of ants like you take some of them out but the rest of them just sort of change course and go a different go around the brick and that's what we keep doing and that is um also cause for hope right so i you know i the the big question of the big question for me is like if world war 1 could have been prevented would the flu epidemic still have happened hmm. um i think the flu epidemic was exacerbated exacerbated by world war 1 but like one of those things was a one of those things claimed millions of lives and was a preventable or or we think of it as a preventable human folly and one of them was just a biological agent but i often wonder whether human folly is also just a biological agent how do you mean well that you know that world war 1 because we are because we are the people yeah yeah we can say that world war 1 was caused by the assassination of franz ferdinand but right. before that it was caused by the european powers colonizing africa and the germans feeling um feeling very competitive about uh the english control of the oceans and we can say that it you know that the russians um had been uh, that the russian aspirations and slavic aspirations were were a uh, fuel on the fire and and so forth and so on and we can go all the way back to we can go as far back as we want all the way past the 30 years war keep yeah. going yes um but that's just because we that's just because we're telling the story. We're, right, we're, connect, our, we're connecting the dots. Yeah, we're connecting the dots. But all of that stuff from the perspective of a, uh, a giant scientist looking at the earth as an organism or looking at human beings as a sort of high. Um, like they aren't, they don't perceive all of that agency. They just see waves and uh ripples and in the sense of in this you know in in eonic time um does it is there really a difference between world war 1 and the spanish flu uh they both had similar effect and and um changed the change the course of history and and yet they were both 
just blips, ripples, really, in the long arc. So, you know, so, so maybe our politics and our brains are just another um you know they're just another iteration of a kind of chemical chemical biological impulse to sometimes live sometimes die right <laughs> you know and like trying to rationalize around that i mean I, and, and rationalizing it is all that we that's all that we do that's our that's our number one job i mean actually quality is job one but the second job is rationalizing <laughs> and it gives you know it gives meaning to our lives it it uh, gives meaning to our growth to tell that to tell stories about ourselves but like really what are really what are we building and ultimately I think it is that we are building earth to be a To be a launch pad, and um, and then and then what? <laughs> then, then 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 what? Like then what are we? Are we trying to gain control of our corner of the universe? And then what? I mean, I I think that that's all wonderful stuff. Um, I just won't live to know. All I can all I can do is is um, is ask my science friends to to write novels. This is some deep stuff, man. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so whenever I <clears throat> whenever I get sick, well, but also I mean, running for city council throws this stuff up in kind of bold relief because. The, because there are issues, there are real issues facing Seattle that are very important, and a lot of people feel like they are of the utmost importance, and that running for public office, you need to share that conviction that that these issues are of the utmost importance. Yeah. Because if you don't, if you don't feel that they are of the utmost importance, how will you possibly get? How will you possibly direct enough energy to solving them? If you're somebody who is thinking about things in historical terms, how will you ever get up out of bed in the morning and solve the problems of um, all the sidewalks we need to build and all the uh, fire hydrants we need to repaint? And of course, that stuff is super important. And most of the time I spend um, now, I'm focused on the, the real and concrete and incremental and and pragmatic solutions to like actual problems facing you and me but you can't do both you have to be able to do both i think and this is the thing that too few people running for office or or commanding armies ever do sit and think about uh about spheres beyond the one that they're that they're mucking in and and we and we're we're worse off because if you can't you know if you can't ultimately see that 
building Seattle and and by that I mean like making sure that the sidewalks go in is part of building Seattle the city the current city which is lived in by my contemporaries which is also building Seattle the city of the future where my children live and where they can depend on things having been built well by their by their parents and which is also building Seattle which is the exemplar the city on a hill that other cities follow you know that other cities can use as an example and that and ultimately we're building a world of cities that don't deplete the earth that aren't um, at war with one another and if you're not thinking about building sidewalks in those terms, then you you then you miss it. You miss you miss why the sidewalks are important. Mm-hmm. And and ultimately, I don't think you will do it. You'll do a, as good a job because you're not uh, because you're not taking in all the you're not factoring in all the 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 reasons why that sidewalk has to be good it has to be good it has to be good a hundred years from now it has to one day that sidewalk will get pulled up and replaced with something else and the way you build it now will suggest to those people in the future like what to replace it with Mm -hmm. right and that's the that's that ripple that you can't predict that's that that's that that bridge that you pass under that inspires you and you say, my God, that bridge is the most beautiful thing. And you take that, you take that into the next thing that you make. That's the, that's the, that's the big argument I'm trying to make to, to Seattle right now, which is that if you just build spaces, you're not conscious of the fact that what you're trying to build is places. And if you are, if you're just building for present need and not conscious of the fact that these things will be used in the future by people with very different needs and very different worlds, then you're doing a, you're doing a terrible disservice. You are, you are, uh, you are failing at your main job, which is to just to set the ball rolling on the on on the right course not just the one that not the, not just the instant gratification but the but like the ultimate service but that's asking a lot of the people of Seattle to yeah. to to uh to take that into consideration when they walk out their front door and say where's my freaking sidewalk yeah <laughs> But I think I can do it. I think I can tell that story. I, you know, I just have to, uh, I just have to, I, I have to, I have to do it with conviction in a way that, that maybe, um, that, that belies my, my own doubt. Because there is a part of me that still wakes up in the middle of the night and thinks that 
but my pillows are owls. <laughs> and that doesn't make me crazy or it doesn't make me unreliable. It's just, it's just that relationship with magic that we all have that you either admit to or you don't, but it, but it introduces enough, it introduces enough questions into, into anything that, I mean, it, it introduces enough questions into my worldview, into the, into the idea that what I'm looking at is shared by everyone else, that we all see the same mountains and we all see the same challenges. Um, and that, you know, that doubt, that little bit of doubt is enough to, um, to, well, it certainly intrudes when I'm standing at a lectern and saying, here are the challenges. <laughs> here are the, here are my solutions. Right. And, and people applaud. And if you, you know, if you're up there saying like, here are the challenges. If there are no ghosts, which I'm not a hundred percent sure of, you know, that just, that's just, that's just enough, uh, doubt that, that, that it makes you a bad demagogue. Right. Um, and we still, we still love demagogues. We, we love ideologues in Seattle as, as everywhere else. So, yeah, it's a big, it's a, it's a big, um, it's a big trip to, to, to locate the, the fantastical and the historical in the present and the real. And it takes a, it takes a lot of energy that I feel like maybe my opponents don't have to expend. I feel like they are not. But they're focused they just on the, on the more, just the surface issues. It seems, although you can never know what someone who doesn't have a podcast is thinking about when they wake up in the middle of the night. That's true. And that's, um, you know, everybody's got their night terrors. Uh, so yeah, I I mean, you know, election day is one week from today. I know. And, uh, and all of this stuff kind of plays into, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to get done talking to you and I'm going to wander home and I'm going to, are you not in your home right now? No, I am in my special office space. Oh. My special office space, which is in a converted um, immigration prison. <laughs> of course it is. Yeah. Seattle <laughs> Seattle had of course. Uh, Seattle has always had a lot of uh uh people immigrating here from, from foreign lands. Right. And so back in the 1930s, we built an immigration building to house uh, what at the time was a lot of um, uh, a lot of people from China. And then during World War II, we put a lot of our Japanese citizens here on their way to internment camps. And then we spent a lot of time imprisoning people from all around the world until we really decided to start focusing on people from Mexico and Central America. And then right at the end of the life of this building, we were imprisoning a lot of people from Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, and also Ukraine, um, Belarus, Russia. Mm -hmm. And 
we got so excited about imprisoning people who were here in in Seattle um, illegally that we built a brand new immigration prison to the south of here that could accommodate all the hundreds and hundreds of new people we wanted to arrest <laughs> for not having their their papers in order. And they left this building kind of empty for a while. And I mean, this building is so full of, you know, generations of, of, uh, of torment. People just in like the worst kind of limbo. And then someone came along and bought the building at a fire sale price and decided they were going to put T1 internet lines through it and, <laughs> and turn it into a, a startup uh, incubator. Right, right. And then the market crashed. And so the owners were like, ah, oh, it's like going to be really expensive to, to build it out as high-end office space. Right. So let's just throw some drywall up and rent it to artists. <laughs> I mean, it seems and, like a good idea. It's a pretty good idea. Artists don't care. And artists actually like to be in a space full of ghosts. Um, artists like to, to feed off of all kinds of energy. And I don't particularly, I'm very sensitive to this stuff. I don't find the energy in here is really dark. It's, um, it's too complex, right? There were people coming in and out of here all the time. People did die here, but people also were released from here and went on, you know, to be free. And it was, it was a, it was a way station and a, and obviously like a, a terrible place for many, but, but I don't, I mean, I spend a lot of time I'm here at all hours of the day and night and I don't, I don't feel like it is. You're not creeped out the way you are in the graveyard. No, not at all. I, I feel like the, the, all that complex energy is still here, but it's, um, but now people are painting and drawing and taking pictures and making encaustics and doing podcasts. And, um, the building has a new life and it's a pretty exciting place. So I've had an office here for a couple of years and, um, now it's I hear, I hear seagulls or something. There, there are seagulls. Yeah. They, the Just seagulls perfectly love, on cue right there. They love to come sit on the on the uh, cornice of the building and yell at each other about like the the uh, fag end of a hot dog that somebody from Safeco Field threw <laughs> off the edge of the uh, <laughs> balustrade. Uh huh. And uh, and it's also you know this part of Seattle this this location where the building sits is at a really interesting crossroads. Right to the south of me used to be tidal flats, and it was a Hooverville in the Great Depression, and then, and it was you know it was kind of filled in and turned into an industrial area. And to the east of me is kind of a big a big cut that was made in the in the hillside at one point over a hundred years ago when it was thought that maybe they would dig a canal over to the lake and then they abandoned that idea but they left the they left the cut and built a built a bridge over where they had uh blown up the the hill and the street 
that this building sits on is actually called Seattle Boulevard. And Seattle Boulevard itself is only two blocks long. <laughs> you would think with that name, it would be a major thoroughfare. Right? And back in the olden times, it was a major thoroughfare. But then with the invention of the airplane, uh, a little Italian farmer donated his blueberry patch to the city of the, to the, you know, the, the young city of Seattle to build its first municipal airport, which is where the Boeing company located its first, uh, its first factory and Seattle Boulevard became airport way, which it remains. But this little two block remnant of it, retained the name Seattle Boulevard for some reason. So, yeah, we say that, that we're on Seattle Boulevard and uh, people who have lived here their whole lives are like, what? Where, where is Seattle Boulevard? That's See, this, is, this, this should point out to you, you know things about things that other people just don't know. That's very, I mean, that, that's not common, you know? Yeah. I'm not sure if it is this, like, it, how do you, how do you sit down one day and you're like, I wonder, I wonder what the last couple hundred years of this particular street's history are and, and like start researching that. Like, how oh, does it, because I mean, it's fascinating. I'm not, I don't mean to take anything away from it. It's fascinating, but like, how does it, how is it that you go through the pro? Because I, I think that a lot of people are just trying to get, get work done. <laughs> and and you can spin a yarn about the history of a two block street that's fascinating but how do you like how does it occur to you to begin to research that uh, I, I wonder i wonder the history of this building that i'm standing in and yeah it just it um because I think we should all do that a bit more. I should. <laughs> it feels like, you know, when you say like everybody's trying to get work done, that has always felt like the work that I was trying to get done. Mm. Um, <laughs> you know, as I, as I drive around the town on my way to other work I have to do, I'm always looking around and thinking, why is this like, why is this like it is? Because every, everything that humans have built and made they did at some, this is the amazing thing about people, right? Nobody says to themselves, I'm a bad person and I am doing low quality work mm. and I'm doing it lazily and to spite other people. Right. I mean, almost everybody says, I'm a good person and I am doing good work. And if it turns out poorly, it's because other people didn't, you know, fulfill their end of the bargain. Other people aren't pulling their weight. Right. But most people think that they're doing a good job. And so when you look at the things that get built, you know, all of the stuff that we look at and go like, Oh, it's so ugly. This, this interstate freeway is so ugly. It's just, polluted and right. gross right. and just ugh. But then when you look at it and you try to imagine the the 
the people building it, boy, they built it with pride. And they thought they were building something incredible. Like they were giving us an incredible gift. It was, and some of those people are still alive. It's in recent memory that the interstate freeway was considered a beautiful and major achievement. And so trying to look at that, trying to look at the stuff that I see through the eyes of the people that built it and try to, trying to connect with the pride that they had is, uh, it's always been a, a hobby and it's a way of, it's kind of, in a way, it's like emotional historical tourism. Because I can go stand and look at an interstate that, that at one level I'm repelled by but I can, I can stand and look at it for a little while and be like, oh no, now I see it's 1959 and I am an engineer and I probably fought in World War II. Oh my God. And, you know, and now I'm building this, this... Like I'm home and I'm building this thing now. This conveyance that is going to make people's lives better and it's, you know, and this is the next evolution. This is, this is the future. And I am like... I'm leaving my mark here. And then all of a sudden you can't hate it. You know, you have to look at the freeway and go like, ah, I mean, I still, I still feel like it was, a, it was a misstep, but, but the thing itself was made with, with pride and is a thing of beauty and was, and, and it was an expression of that same hope and that same desire to do good. And so, I can't just despise it and I can't just seek to erase it. I have to try and um, even if I want it torn down, I want it, I want to tear it down to build upon the idea of it, to build upon that, the inspiration of it. I remember. uh, Well, go ahead. Sorry. No. So, so that's, you know, so that's the, that's the research or that's the education. It, it, it starts not with like opening a book and saying like, when was this built? But, but more like it starts with who built this and why. Our last sponsor is Wealthfront. These guys are back uh, to sponsor some more stuff. So that means you guys have been checking them out and it, it's, it's such a great service. Wealthfront.com slash five by five. And what they are, they're an automated investment service that makes it easy to invest your money the right way. You just set it and forget it. And that's the thing, like nobody wants to worry and research the stuff because we don't have enough to do, right? Like to research the stock market and find out what's going on and which stock is here and which one is where this one's going up. They, They do all of that for you and they make it super easy to view your accounts all in one place, personal joint retirements in one place. It's the most amazing thing ever. And they charge only 0.25% per year. That's less than a quarter of the cost of a traditional investment advisor and you don't have to worry about trading commissions or hidden costs or various nickel and dime fees that you're going to find with like regular investment managers. It's not there. They just don't charge you for those things. It's amazing. It's a really cool system and it's all automated. It's all right there on your computer. Their service is made possible by combining a team of world-class financial experts with, uh, with some of the Silicon Valley's best technology talents they put together a system that is now managing more than two billion dollars in assets it's grown over 20 times in the last two years and you can be a part of it five by five listeners are going to get their first ten thousand dollars managed for free when they visit 
wealthfront.com slash five by five. That means you go check it out. Wealthfront.com slash five by five. Here's a little disclaimer. They require me to read. Wealthfront Inc. is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Brokerage services are offered through Wealthfront Brokerage Corporation member FINRA and SIPC. This is not a solicitation to buy or sell securities. Investing in securities involves risks, and there is the possibility of losing money. Past performance, no guarantee of future results. Please visit Wealthfront.com to read the full disclosure. Thanks very much to them for supporting 5 by 5 and Back to Work. I remember there was a, a building that I worked in yeah, at at this uh, really corporate company in Lake Mary, Florida. And the building had been built by this architect and it was sort of dark. And I mean, it was a big building. Thousands of people worked there. But it always had this kind of negative vibe to it. And I always just attributed that to like how everyone was sort of angry and downtrodden and had a lot of angst. And then I found out that the the guy who had architected it and designed it like a couple years later killed himself and was depressed and like that thing that he built that we all had to inhabit was like inhabiting this some aspect of his mind that was depressed and 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 not not happy and like it it's somehow for those who i think were uh, open to think about it like that space itself was like the part of his mind that was wrong. Hmm. And like, you, you know, you think, you think about the things that we make, the things that we build and our attempts at, you know, at making something great. And like, here was a person who had trouble and built something that even though like from the outside, it was, Oh, this is a nice building, you know, <laughs> like inside it was kind of crazy. Wow. That's heavy. It's weird, right? And like, I'm sure he didn't see it that way. I'm sure he didn't sit down and say, I'm going to make a building that's screwed up the way that my (laughs) mind is screwed up. You know, I think he's like, I'm going to build a great building. A great building. Yeah. Right. A great building as I see it. That's right. That answers the questions that 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 I I think are the questions. Yeah. I mean, what, when when Robin Williams killed himself, I remember looking at all of the photographs of him that I could find and feeling uh, and seeing them all in a completely different way, just in the sense that uh, we we had gotten so used to seeing Robin Williams photographed with you know in a group of people who are all like having a total peak moment. Like they are standing there with Robin with Williams. With Robin Williams, yeah. And he is grimacing and, you know, and kind of clutching himself as though he's having uh, like stomach pains. And we got so used to seeing Robin Williams kind of grimacing that we just thought that that was Robin Williams. That was his normal face and that was him being funny and, what a fun guy. Uh, and then you look at all, all those pictures and realize that he was telegraphing his pain mm. in every photograph that was taken of him for the last 30 years. There was a moment in his life when he stopped when he stopped being a clown in photographs with fans mm-hmm. and just stood there and was himself. 
Um, and so we had decades of record of Robin Williams in, in you know, in some kind of psychic torment and, and, and broadcasting it. Uh, and none of us were able to interpret what we were seeing. Fascinating. You know, and I mean, I, I don't know. When Kurt Cobain died, I had not, I was not a fan of In Utero when it first came out because yeah. I was one of those people that was like, it's not as good as blah, blah. <laughs> I think their best record is Bleach and Merp, Nerp, Nerp. But when he died, it affected me profoundly. Yeah. And I went and started listening to In Utero uh, on constant repeat. And of course, that record, if you listen for it. Oh, it's a cry for help for sure. Yeah, it's a suicide note and yeah. and and a um you know and and I don't know how much of that is real and how much of it is is um is after the fact but but at the time I definitely felt like my god how could we have missed this right um because I guess there's that part of it that's like this song is just an expression of an emotion that he might have been feeling one night you know and but I think for him, it was definitely, you know, th- this this was, I think you describing it as a suicide note, like that's, this is this thing that he was creating that was revealing these feelings. And in, in so many cases, not, not hidden, not kind of masked by complicated lyrics, but as much as just like, yeah, this is what he was feeling, yeah. like very much on the surface. Well, then you think about like the architectural fashions and you, you know, not just the, the, like the building that you're describing in Florida that was built by someone very troubled and you could just feel it in the bones of the building. But like, I wonder often about modernism, you know, as a movement or, um, you know, a lot of the, the a lot of the inhumanity of post-war arch- architecture was you know so so like clearly a reaction to trauma and we accept it as beautiful even as it is even as it like rejects humanity in a lot of ways i mean if you go downtown in austin or in seattle or anywhere and you pick out the post-war, the, the buildings built immediately post-war. They are unfriendly. Yeah. Defensive, and, right? Yeah, that's right. And, and yet we admire them and they inspired architects. You know, that's an example of a ripple that went out from a place of, you know, from a place that was ultimately like a cry of, anguish and rippled out taking the form of like a, a a style and as we accept that style and incorporate it into new work we're also incorporating that anguish into new work and and never reflecting on it so it's so that anguish and inhumanity becomes a ripple that survives long past whatever the memory of what generated it was. And that's true of like, 
the systemic racism in America too, right? That things are built on racist premises that we then a generation later look at and say, what a beautiful thing. What a, mm-hmm. what a lovely, what a lovely example of that era's, uh, you know, like Belle Epoque values or whatever. And the, but the, but the, the bitter pill is encoded in it and sent out in the things that, you know, that are born from it. And we don't, we don't think in those terms. So it, so we encounter everything each day as though, as though it has, it's either always been there or it just plopped down in front of us and it's a new obstacle we have to navigate. And yet, no, it's, it's all very, the, the history and the history of the time in which things were built and the motivations of the people building them, those are incredibly important still. Even as the building has been repurposed a thousand times and even if it's an art space now and even if it's a, you know, even if that warehouse has become a, a discotheque, like, um, and, so, you know, some of that can be erased and some of it wasn't, some, some brick buildings are just brick buildings. But those, there are those messages and I know there are because I'm trying to send those messages out from where I am. I know there were time travelers in the past too who were, who were sending that kind of energy into the things they were building and the, the notions they were putting forth. Mm-hmm. So I guess it's a receptivity to that too. Like we need to be receptive to, to touch the things we encounter and, and you look at them a second time and say like, what are you? What are you and why are you? Why are you here and, what, and how do you make me feel? But these are exactly the kinds of things I would want somebody like in your running for running for office to be thinking about. Well, and in fact, yeah. like maybe it would terrify me now if they weren't. Yeah, but that's the thing. We don't, these aren't questions we know how to ask. These aren't, this isn't, this, these aren't questions we know how to use to vet somebody. So we, you know, we often elect people who are good at performing and who have put no thought into anything. There are, there are people running for president right now who are, who are performing the, the, uh, the role, but who have, have they been practicing the role their whole lives, but they have not really put very much thought into things. And, um, and so we don't know how to ask those questions because it's scary. It's scary. It's ultimately, it's scary to hear people talk this way because it, uh, because it's the opposite of certainty. You know, there's nothing in your and my conversation today that leads us to certainty about anything. It leads us only to uncertainty. And, then to walk out the door and say, but we are going to build a bridge over this river. <laughs> it's right for people to say, I would like to be certain that that bridge doesn't fall in, into the river. And to be able to, to speak with, you know, to be able to speak lovingly about uncertainty and then go do a thing that is also 
very certain. You know, it's a, it is a gear change. And I think most people are capable of making those gear changes, but it's, it just requires energy. They have to eat an extra sandwich that day, or they have to, you know, they have to go to a, to a midnight mass or something to, to give them that extra charge. And, and most people don't want to do that. So the thing that they want to eliminate is the uncertainty, not the certainty. Yeah. Unless they're a mystic. I don't know. I, I, I honestly don't. And, and, uh, you know, and, and, it, and it excites me, but, but I don't know what, you know, I don't know where my energy comes from sometimes and, and how to replenish it. That's the problem. It, it's not it, like the the energy always is there until it's not, and then you and then you wonder like how do I put more fuel in that tank? I don't even know what that tank is. Right, you got a lot on your mind. Yeah, well, and not only that, but I arrived at my office today, and there was a package leaning against the door, uh-huh. a box. Yeah, I was like, huh. Addressed to me, yeah, from a woman in Canada uh, that I know from the internet, uh-huh. and I was like, "Interesting." Okay. I, I brought it inside, I unwrapped it, and it was full of smaller packages wrapped <laughs> wrapped in <laughs> tissue. Uh-huh. And I was like, "What does what does this foretell? What <laughs> what am I about to you know?" Like I I, oh, I unwrapped the first one with some trepidation. And when I had unwrapped it, it uh, was revealed to be an eight inch tall doll of uh, Winston Churchill. Of course. And I said, hmm, it's a, it's a beautiful. Doll. Like a handmade. Yeah. Like she made it. No, no, no. It, 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 it it seemed to be like uh, like a kind of it was the type of doll that maybe would have been part of a set that was made in the 1950s okay and then the second doll i unwrapped was william shakespeare and then the third one was queen victoria oh wow and so it is this something you asked for in some no, way i had no idea that this was coming and i have no idea i still have no idea what it is I stopped unwrapping dolls <laughs> at that point because it was time to do this conversation with you. And I'm how big? Over, how big are they? Well, they're eight inches tall. Okay, and they are they are elaborately costumed in the clothes of their time. Right. Uh, they, they appear to be porcelain, and uh, the box is. I I have unwrapped. Three dolls, and I imagine there are probably a dozen or more dolls waiting to be unwrapped. No note, no explanation, nothing else. So far, I have not seen a note or any explanation. It just, it just uh, is a thing that arrived, <laughs> and I'm trying. I'm trying to parse. I'm trying to. I'm trying to parse. Like clearly, I love it. Yeah. Um. And. I'm, you know, and I'm looking forward to 
to digging in, mm-hmm. not just to like the, the box and <laughs> the dolls, but like what is the context of these dolls? Um, and, and now what? Right now, what do I do? Um, but like not very long ago, I came to my office here and there was a box uh, full of old, weird library books, including a book called Europe Since 1815 <laughs> that someone <laughs> had sent me. Yeah, And that book is, has like really nice color plate um, maps of Europe yeah. that are that it are like super gorgeous but also like it's a it's a book about it's a history book about Europe that was published in 1910 so it's called Europe since 19, since 1815 which yeah. is to say Europe since after Napoleon right that's what they should have said and but maybe if it was made in 1910, that would be a little, being not even 100 years, you'd still be thinking more about Napoleon. You absolutely would have. Yeah. Right? So like that year, 1815, might have meant a little more to you than now it sounds a little arbitrary. Uh, right. But at the, at the time, everybody would have known exactly what, uh, what that meant. It would be like getting a book right now that, that was called Europe Since 1920. Right, that's the that's the distance from the time that this book was published to what it was referring to. Yeah, but but what's amazing about this book is that it that it is before World War One. So their imagination about what they're about looking they're looking back in their own history, European history, but they have no idea what's coming. Five years later, every conclusion that they draw, every single every single um, idea that they had about what e- Europe since 1815 meant would be upended, right? They didn't, in 1910, they could not have seen themselves as in the middle of the stream. They saw themselves as like, here we are, 1910. Let's look back at all of, let's look back at the revolutions of 1848. Let's look back at and see how far we've come. And, you know, that period, 1815 to 1915, you know, it was just incubating. I mean, and all, all, that, all that shit that the, the, of the, all those wars of the Napoleonic era, they just incubated for 100 years and exploded in, in World War I. And here this, like, amazing tattered old book full of maps is this record of what 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 we what i can only think of is like this spirit of total naivete um because it was all you know a lot of this was swept away a lot of the a lot of even that the um a lot of the mentality of 1910 was gone by 1920 mm-hmm. just just gone and the people the people that wrote these books were gone so yeah, so I every once in a while I show up at my office and there's a box waiting for me with an unexplained gift in it from someone who's out there sending me um a little you know I I feel like sometimes 
that I have befriended an army of crows and they are leaving me little pieces of string and bits of mirror. Yeah. Um, but so, yeah, when I get off the phone with you, I'm going to unwrap this box of dolls and see. And I, and I think, I mean, if, if, if it weren't for the inclusion of Churchill, I would have said, oh, that these dolls were, these dolls were from the 1930s or they predated. Oh, right. But, you know, uh, but Churchill is the, is one piece of evidence. And if I find, if I find Queen Elizabeth in there, then I'll know that it's from the fifties or, you know, but if there's a Prince Charles in there, then it's going to be, I'm going to have to readjust my, my idea. Oh yeah. Um, but that's part of the, you know, part of the magic of discovery. And then I'm going to have to find a place to display these, this Baker's dozen of weird <laughs> English dolls. I, I'm hoping you post a, a photo. I surely will. I hope you do. I surely will. Let's talk again soon, John. Okay, Dan Benjamin, let's uh, let's do. Merlin's going to come back and and sweep away all this uh, detritus. Yeah, that's right. With the, the new broom, but then you and I should we should continue uh, 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 our conversation on a separate channel. I would like that very much. Take care, John. Talk to you soon. Bye. <laughs>